It's really hard to show that specific long-term component if you don't talk about here's how it's going to go. My name is Merrill Dubro, CEO of Mark Research. I'm a 35-year veteran of the research and insights community and the host of our podcast, On The Mark. On The Mark is focusing on executives and thought leaders in the world, sharing their insights, strategies, and personal experiences. I promise this podcast will be filled with tough, pointed questions with real, insightful, and emotional answers. Today's guest is Chad Don Vito, the Chief Marketing Officer at Kings Hawaiian. Chad, welcome to the On The Mark podcast. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me. Thanks, Chad. Well, here we are in October. And we'll start with a little funky question, um, which just popped in my mind because you're actually based in California. Are you a Dodgers fan? Because the Dodgers are down 2-0 to the Braves. Are they going to come back? So you know what? I am actually, uh, I spent quite a bit of time up in Boston, so I am a Red Sox fan. Oh my God. There we go. I will support my neighbors and colleagues around here that love the Dodgers. So hopefully they do bounce back, but I'll tell you, uh, I've seen the Dodgers uh, disappoint before, so uh, we'll hope for the best. Well, hopefully your Dodgers will make it because the bubble here is in Texas and I'll be going to the World Series starting Tuesday night. So hopefully the Dodgers are there. All right, Chad, let's start with this. Give me something that, you know, I know we're total strangers. We've never met. And actually, this is the first time we've actually spoke on the phone. Why don't you tell me something that people who are close to you might be a little surprised to know about you? I live in LA right now. I've lived in New York. I've lived in Boston, kind of big town. Um, but uh, but I grew up in a very small town, northern central California in the Sierra Nevadas. I grew up in a town of 500 people, more cows in my town, actually probably about 10x cows in my town than uh, than people. I grew up there, worked on a fishing resort. My family raised horses out there. Very different upbringing than where I currently am, I would say. Wow. So Boston, you know, my background is Boston as well. Now you also lived in you went to Wharton, so you went. You lived in Philly for a while, right? I did. It was a great city. A bit of a culture shock for uh, you know a small town kid coming from California to go to Philly. I loved the place. It was great. One of my surprises when I moved there, Chad, and I, I'd visited it a few times. You know, in Boston or LA or New York, you know where the bad sections are. In Philly, it went from good section to bad section to, to good section ridiculously quickly there. And they weren't really identified. Did you have the same takeaway? Oh, yeah. I, so I wrestled there at Penn. And so oh, wow. we used to run in the morning sometimes. And so I didn't know the city. And so I'd run through different neighborhoods. And I, I kid you not, some neighbors would go from good to bad quick. I've had bottles thrown at me. I've been uh, chased twice. <laughs> it's uh, Philly was an interesting place. I, again, I love it for all its character. Oh, absolutely. I remember running on the Schuylkill. Remember the Schuylkill? Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, it was a great experience. And I would like do my Rocky impression and run up the stairs and at the museum and stuff. I had a lot and then and run through um, the Italian market. Did you ever do that? Of course. You have to relive that rocky experience. Every athlete wants to uh, get up the stairs and go to the Italian market. All right. Give me, before we get into your career, give me your favorite wrestling memory. Was it, you know, you're in the NCAAs and you, and you knocked off the number one seed or you were playing in front of a thousand people, including your parents, and you pinned this guy in 12 seconds. Give me something. I wish I could say I knocked out the number one NCAAs. That would have been fantastic. But I'll tell you what, my favorite memory actually of wrestling is, is comes before then. My father was my high school wrestling coach. And there were so many great times traveling with him 
all over the country to things. And he had me when he was pretty young. So it was almost like having a brother or having uh, you know, a good friend uh, wrestling with you. And so a lot of the, the wins and the different things fade away. But the memory of doing that with my dad is, is, the, is the lasting impression, certainly. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. All right. So let's get into your career a little bit. Give me a little bit on, um, you know, the different positions you've had, because I found your career really, really interesting. Absolutely. Uh, you want me to start at the beginning? Sure. Go all the way back. Why not? I know you, I knew you're, and I want some financial advice because I know it started uh, way back with Goldman Sachs. So Tell me what's going to happen, will you? Yeah, uh, I wish if I had that crystal ball, uh, you and me both would be on a beach somewhere. I went to Penn, uh, to the Wharton School undergrad, and I I did that uh, recognizing that I knew I wanted to get into business, just not knowing exactly what. You're obviously a great, well-rounded school out there and got to learn a lot from folks. Ended up going into uh, brand management right out of the gate, uh, and it wasn't necessarily my intention. I thought I would be a finance guy uh, coming out of undergrad, but went into brand management, uh, went to craft, and they had a really great uh, kind of leadership development program for undergrads uh, that they typically would use MBAs for. And so they were kind of piloting it. I think there were a total of about 12 of us over the course of a few years. So I got a ton of great learnings, uh, really how to run a business, how to market, and it was fantastic learning ground, Kraft Foods. And so I uh, went back to business school uh, after Kraft. Knew I wanted to uh, continue down the business path. Wanted to learn a little bit more. So got into Harvard. I don't know how they let me in there, but they did. And I got to learn some great, great things, meet some great colleagues. Uh, and that's where I went, into, I went to Goldman. So I went to Goldman after HBS. Uh, you know, great company, really, really smart people. But honestly, what I learned there is that my passion really uh, was within marketing. Uh, I kind of had that itch I wanted to scratch from finance. I didn't go into, into undergrad and I thought I was going to, but I realized when I was there, it just wasn't the passion that I had. I love running businesses. I love developing products. I love marketing things. So that's where I went back into uh, went back into toys, actually. I went to Hasbro, did marketing there, which was fantastic. I managed the Star Wars business, the Nerf business. You know, I became a hero to my kids instantly when I brought home every Nerf blaster uh, known to man. And, uh, and that, was, that was just a ton of fun. Loved it there. Had the ability after that to be able to get back to California, get here with King's Hawaiian, do some great things with a, a really great food brand. And, and just it's allowed me to continue my passion for growing businesses and participating in brands that are fun and, and can really interact with consumers. I like it, but I've got a funny question. So my kids always ask me, right? Hey, dad, you're, you're CEO of a company what do you mean? What do you do? And I try to explain it. And at the end of it, they look at me and they say, well, what do you, what do you do? What do you, what, what does that mean? What are your responsibilities? So let me start with this. What are your current role and responsibilities as CMO? Because that does change from one company to another. So who, what reports into you, what departments and what are your responsibilities? Kind of the entire consumer journey is really mine. So I have our insights department, does all of our consumer research. Uh, I have our marketing and branding teams so that manage our businesses, do all of our marketing. I have our consumer communications team. So anyone that touches uh, the consumer. Uh, so, you know, call centers, advocacy. We have an advocacy department uh, that reaches out with consumers. Then I also have new product commercialization. So we have an innovation team that develops products, but my team is the commercialization team. Uh, so bringing out uh, new products to market. And then we also have something that we call new ventures. So when we want to go look at some kind of unique new things, uh, we have a team here that I work with that does that as well. And what they do are things like, uh, you know, we launched a, a King's Hawaiian grill, kind of a small restaurant concept in 
some sports stadiums across the country. Uh, and so my team uh, is responsible for pulling those together. So it's kind of all those consumer touch points that, that we have outside of the store. When we get into the store, um, my team is responsible for creative, but we have a merchandising team that reports in through sales. So that's kind of where the break point is at. That's interesting. So did you guys bid on, or are you going to be in the new Texas Ranger Stadium at Glow Life Park? Do you have a Do you have a kiosk or a restaurant in there? You know, we don't right now. Okay. It would be an awesome stadium. We're, we're focused primarily on the East Coast with our grills uh, because we really, that's, that's one area where we have kind of less awareness for our consumers. And so we thought, you know, what a great way to experience it when you can put this product in your mouth by eating it in a stadium where you have these kind of uh, great associations with good times. And so, right. so that's our focus right now. Um, we are moving into uh, NASCAR. And so we'll have some uh, more stadiums across the country uh, with NASCAR, but we primarily focus on the East Coast. And do you think that that'll spill into airports when... COVID is behind us and people are traveling a little bit more than they are now. Is that a goal too? It certainly might because the model is uh, one that would fit that, right? So we go into these these venues and they're managed by food service company, right? So Levy, Aramark, you know, different folks will manage those things. Yep. Similar situation sure. for airports. So the model is built that it could work that way. We have not yet uh, pursued that, but it's kind of, you know, we want to get the uh, a couple of under our belt and make sure they're really, they're humming along before we, uh, before we expand it too far. Oh, that's great. Well, and don't forget Harry M. Stevens. I worked in uh, for Harry M. Stevens when I was in college at Nassau Coliseum. I was the guy who sold beer here, pretzels, peanuts, <laughs> nice. all that stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. yeah, absolutely. Very cool. So let me take you back a little bit to March of 2019. There you are. You come back to Kings Hawaiian. You're now the CMO. You must have come into the job with two or three initial goals that you had, right? What what were they? Do you remember? Yeah. So there were a couple things. Uh, the first and foremost was to get as close to the consumer as we could. So when we when I was first here, I actually did two stints at Kings Hawaiian. I worked at Kings Hawaiian for about four and a half years, left for a little bit, and came back. You know, the first stint we really wanted to get awareness up, get people to know the brand broad speaking, get awareness out there. And then when I came back and we kind of picked all the low hanging fruit of awareness uh, and it was now about, okay, well, how do we get really close to our consumer to get even deeper insights so that we can pivot a little bit. And the goal really was all about frequency. How do we get our consumers that love us? We have a, a broad swatch of consumers now that love us that they don't buy us very often. How could I change that paradigm and get them to love us more frequently? Um, and so to do that, the two big pieces were, okay, let's drill in deep into consumer insights. So we expanded our insights department and it was, let's pivot our marketing executions. How do we make sure that people don't look at us just as a special occasion holiday brand, but look at us to make any occasion special. So we're still not like your everyday brand, but I want anytime you say, you know what, let's do something nicer for hamburgers tonight, or let's, you know what, let's get out the, break out the good stuff for this weekend. I want that to be us. Yeah. You know that there's some really nice takeaways there. And I got to tell you something, I'm a huge fan of your brands. Um, I love your bread. I, I, I love it for, you know, sliders and hamburgers and stuff like that. It's fantastic. But, you know, when you talk about insights and when you talk a little bit about kind of takeaways in the consumer journey, you know, the pandemic, I, I love watching people and I love going, I know this is weird, Chad, but I love going in a grocery store and even in, in the pandemic when it first started and see what the rush was and what grocery stores were out of. And obviously they were out of toilet paper and water. And, and I understand those two things, right? But, and you're going to laugh at me. I like Hamburger Helper. 
I grew up on that with my mom. We were we were very we were poor growing up, and you know we had hamburger helper. My mom called it Luxenkugel, which was a fancy name for hamburger helper. And and hamburger helper was not available in March. And also there was a lot of run on like mac and cheese, and there was a lot of run on bread because people and tuna fish because people were making a lot of PB and J sandwiches. So give me a pandemic insight from King's Hawaiian perspective, from the CMO of King's Hawaiian, of because if if obviously PBJ sales are up, they're putting it on something, and I got to believe that's helped your business in some ways. Oh, it definitely has. So our business is up significantly based on COVID, right? And so I think the insight was, you know, look, people were looking for two kind of things, staples and comfort food, things that they know, right? When things are tricky and uncertain, people go back to, you know, hey, those things are comfortable to me. And so the pandemic actually is interesting. When you look at food sales, it's kind of gone through phases. In the beginning, it really was about that staple and that uh, that comfort type food. People were eating slightly less healthy uh, just because uh, I think the nervousness kind of kicked in and hey, I'll get what I can and uh, you know get back to the, the basics that I remember, the mac and cheeses, the hamburger helpers, the PB&Js. Um, over the course of time, I think as people have realized, hey, um, we're in this for the long haul. It's not going away immediately. Um, I, we've actually seen a more of a gradual shift back towards, hey, you know what? I'm at home. I'm working from home. Maybe I can spend a little more time, uh, you know, at running or getting healthier and eating better. Those staples have flattened out a little bit, and uh, people have have looked a little bit more towards health. It hasn't turned all the way around yet, but. Um, but that's kind of the trend that we've seen. That's great. It doesn't surprise me that on that your sales have been soaring. And I assume because a lot of your products can be sold or are sold on Amazon, right? So it's interesting. We have some Amazon presence through 3P, but we're actually not a huge Amazon uh, seller just because of the low price uh, product for the size that it is. However, one thing that we've seen that has expanded dramatically has been click and collect. Whether it's going on to you know retailer websites and buying our products so they can pick them up in the stores, or going through Instacart, we were looking before at you know somewhere in the five percent range of our sales being online via th- either through the Instacarts, the click and collects of the world, and at the peak of. Uh, COVID, it spiked up to about 20%. So significant. And we think that, you know, this will flatten down a little bit as things get back to normal, but realistically, we'll probably be at a 15%. So three times the size of our online based sales that we were pre-COVID. And so, yeah, I think that's a huge piece that everyone across the industry is looking at now and go, okay, how do I actually, you know, own that online type of space? Because it's it's not going to go away. Yeah, that's great stuff. So let me ask you an odd question. I assume you report into, you either report into probably the CEO or the president, right? I do. I report to the CEO. So let me preface it by saying that, you know, the average tenure of a CEO for Fortune 1000 companies is probably 23 months. It's not that long. The CMO is, is obviously longer. So your goals and the CEO goals don't always line up. The CMO goals might be a little bit more in terms of future thinking, hey, if we do this, if we put these marketing dollars in this particular bucket, we'll see a return in 18 months where the CEO is like, yeah, I don't have, Chad, it's awesome, great story. I don't have 18 months, I'm gonna get, you're gonna get me fired. So how do you kind of work with, with a CEO who's knowing that the goals kind of don't always line up? So I have an extremely fortunate position in that Kings Wine as a privately held company, uh, we have a family CEO, uh, and our uh, you know family CEO 
is very long-term focused. And that is one of the incredible benefits uh, of working here is that we're not looking at 18 months, you know, we're not even looking at, you know, 24 months, you know, our CEO thinks in five, 10 year type of increments, because it truly is a family business that he wants to keep in the family wants to continue to grow it. So it is such a refreshing thing, actually, to be able to say, you know what, here are the things that I want to do. And, and to hear from him, what does that do in five years from now? Which is completely, you, you just mentioned, like that's the opposite of in the past. It is, right? <laughs> uh, so it's, it's fantastic. But I, I honestly believe that, you know, as, as he has kind of had put this mindset for me, it's changed the way I think about it. Things, and I think it's actually helpful for CMOs, even in publicly held companies, to think about and to position things as, okay, look, we're trying to create this long-term value. Here's how we're going to show both what the short-term value is going to look like, but what that long-term component is, and almost think about it in two chunks and be able to explain it so that you know when a CEO does go out to shareholders, he can show, hey, look, I've done these two things. It's really hard to show that specific long-term component if you don't talk about here's how it's going to go. Here's where it's going to become uh, a bigger thing in the future. That's been a really cool thing for us to be able to talk about internally in terms of where that goes. And I do think that it has application in, in, in privately or publicly held companies. Oh, that's great. You don't know how fortunate you are. That's amazing because I've got a number of my friends are CMOs and their goals just do not line up and it's a constant tug of war. But that's refreshing to hear that yours um, and with the family and the CEO currently in place that they do. So when I was part of Omnicom, we um, we went through a Harvard Business School training program that was at Babson, but I was taught by Harvard Business School professors. So it was like guys like Dave Maester and Nancy Kahn and Lenny Schlesinger, and you may know some of these and had some of these professors, but whatever, everything I thought about Harvard and Harvard Business School professors, Chad, I was a thousand percent wrong. I thought they would be snooty. I thought they would be stuck up. I thought they weren't going to be approachable. They were one step away from being comedians. They were that good, that smart, that funny. So tell me about the experience. I mean, I know you went to Wharton. So Wharton, obviously Ivy League. I mean, you're talking about the best of the best programs, but, you know, going to Stanford or going to Harvard, you know, H. BS, that brings it to a different level, right? Give me a surprise or give me something that somebody has stereotyped Harvard that you're like, it's just not the case. It's so interesting to say that because to be honest, that was my one concern about going there. I'm from a town of 500 people in the middle of the sticks, you know, kind of uppity snooty is not, and just doesn't, doesn't mesh well with me. Uh, and so, uh, so I was a little concerned and, yeah. and I will tell you that I have met probably over 50% of my best friends now uh, from that program. And they just, they have that colloquial feel like they're normal people. They, they happen to be really good at different things. And that's the, that was the awesome thing about Harvard. In addition to the professors being amazing, you were there with other colleagues um, that really had the you know incredible skills, and you could learn so much back and forth with them. And obviously, the method they use with case study, where you know t- students are teaching each other, um, really facilitates that quite well. But that was that hands down for me. That was the 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 happy surprise that hey, you know what? Everybody is you know just here, normal people. They have some extraordinary capabilities sometimes, but they're not like drinking out of teacups and having silver spoons. It really, it really was different than I had anticipated and, and, and happily different. That's great. I know the pandemic has changed me as a leader. I, you know, for starters, I used to start my day at 6.15 a.m. Now I started at 5 um, with no commute. I also, I also believe that I'm probably, 
in touch with, listen, things can change really, really, really quickly. And you got to be aware of that. Um, I mean, look what happened to Dak Prescott, unfortunately, on Sunday, yeah, which is beyond sad. But um, I know I've changed in a number of ways as a leader. Do you think you've changed? Has the pandemic changed you, Chad, as a leader? And if so, in what way? Yeah, no, I actually think it has. I think I think one of the things that it's done is really, like many people in the country, I'm working from home. Uh, and so been at home pretty much throughout the entirety of, of the pandemic with some, you know, uh, here and there coming into the office. But what I think it's done is it's made me a little bit more aware uh, of my team. I'm very much a people person. I like, you know, when I'm in the office, people are in my office constantly all day long. And at home, that's really hard to replicate because everyone's, you, know, you're, you don't see everybody. And so what it's forced me to do is really go after the things that I need to go after with my team and have conversations I need to go out, have with them specifically and, you know, make sure that they're doing okay. Make sure that, you know, uh, not just, hey, is the work getting done, but be purposeful in my conversations on, hey, how are you feeling? How are you doing with your work from home? How are you doing in these places? And so, you know, in the office, you can kind of just see that. Uh, you can see looks on people's faces. Uh, you can kind of feel body language out. Um, but at, at home, it's different. So it's made me uh, be more focused on the the needs and, and the kind of the underlying feelings of my team, I think, um, than I would have been otherwise. That's great. All right. We're going to end with one, one little, I don't know, question that we're going to give you a do-over. And I'm, I'm a magician and I'm going to be able, I've got magical powers that I'm going to turn back the clock and make, you can, you allow you to make a different decision. So if you got a do-over in your career, you got to zig before you zag, what would you do? What would that do-over be? You know, that's a really difficult question. I'm a big believer that each of our decisions, our life experiences, all those things get us to the location where we are. Uh, without them, I think it's very difficult to have the experience and the the knowledge and the wisdom really that you get from making mistakes. Like if I was able to start over completely, I think the one thing I kind of mentioned as we were having the discussion, like my time in finance was interesting. It probably wasn't the right move for me, but it, it let me understand that, right? It let me understand, hey, you know, there, there's a passion that I have for other things that I want to get back to. So I probably would flip the switch and say, hey, I, I can get two years of my career back and keep it on the same track that I'm on right now. Uh, but the reality is um, it probably made me much stronger, much smarter uh, by having something that just didn't work out exactly like I thought it was supposed to. So that would probably be the only do-over location uh, that I might point to. Chad, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Thanks again for listening. This is the On The Mark podcast. My name is Merrill Dubrow. Have a great day. Thanks, Merrill. Take care.